0: Well, you are aware by now that the Calvary Chapel philosophy of teaching is to teach through the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, not necessarily the books in the order that they're written, but make sure we get through every book. And tonight is a great example of why we do that, because tonight's Bible story is not one that I would ever on my own choose to make the focus for an evening, and you'll see why as we read it. Maybe you've read it already. But, you know, it's it's a gross story. It's very strange and uncomfortable to read. There's been a few of those in Genesis. I think this is probably the worst. But we need to remember that God put them there for a reason, and that God, even seeing what our sensibilities and our, our cultural norms would be like, and what is talked about in polite society would be like, knew what needed to be there. So, This is just another reminder of this is why we do it this way, because I have no excuse to skip what I otherwise would want to skip. So we're going to be in Genesis 19, verses 30 through 38 tonight. Last week, we came to the story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding region. And we spent a lot of time examining the sin of Sodom, which was, of course, homosexuality, among other things, and... We talked about the just wrath of God, but we also talked about how the righteous are not punished with the unrighteous, and God makes a way of escape. But we did not take a lot of time to examine the character of Lot and his family. We've seen him several times, but this is actually the last time we're going to see him in the Bible. So this is the appropriate place, I think, to take a look back on his life and see how, see what kind of lessons we could learn from it. Because while 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, which we'll read later, identifies Lot as a righteous man, he clearly was weak in his faith. And in contrast to the great successes of men like Moses and Abraham and David, he was a failure as a husband, as a father, even as a citizen of his chosen city. Hebrews chapter 11, I'm going to read this passage for you. This is a passage that the writer of Hebrews gave to describe Abraham and Sarah, And others like them. It says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. That language is describing Abraham and Sarah and the like as exiles and sojourners, looking for a city, waiting for the country that is a heavenly one that God is going to provide. But Lot failed where Abraham succeeded because he stopped viewing himself as an exile and a sojourner and instead sought to be part of the wicked world around him. This is key for us because you and I are also, as disciples of Jesus, called to be sojourners and exiles. This is not our home. We're waiting to go to our home. But in the meantime, we live here and Peter especially refers to this as the time of our sojourning, of our wandering, of living in a place that is not our home. And if we try to make this our home and assimilate to the ways of the world, we're not only setting ourselves up for a terrible struggle as we're going to see Lot went through, but we also can bring those that we love along with us who may not be as up to the challenge as we are. We're going to see in this story that Lot himself was able to handle the temptations of Sodom, but his family was not. And they paid dearly for it. And before Lot left the city, you remember the angels told him in verse 12, they asked, have you anyone else here? He says, okay, we're going to leave. Who are you taking with you? Who have you brought to righteousness, to the worship of the true and living God? And of course, he could bring no one with him except his wife and his two daughters. And that's the question that we all have to answer. We're sojourners, we're exiles, and one day we're going home, but the question we've got to ask is, who are you taking with you? Because your life is not just for you, it's for those around you. And God has strategically placed each one of us in the city and in the town and the neighborhood and the family that we are in, in order to be salt and light. And when the Lord comes to say, hey, these are those that are coming with me. So let's look at this story, and this is the, the story of Lot's great failure and We'll uh, look back on his life in general, but in this story specifically. Verse 30. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Now this is perhaps the most disturbing story we have in the Bible, the most sordid and uncomfortable When Lot's two daughters abused him in his sleep and bore incestuous children. And you can see how the writer structured this, how he gives every detail in full twice, to the point by the time you're done reading it, you go, okay, I get it, stop. He's trying to impress upon you how horrible this was. Lot left the city of Zoar. Do you remember he was told, flee to the hills. And he told the angels, we can't go to the hills, I'm too old, I can't make it. Can I instead go to this little city, this little insignificant city? And that's what the name Zoar means, little or insignificant. And God said, fine, I was planning to destroy that city, but I'll spare it for your sake. But when all of the valley, all of the Jordan Valley went up in smoke, fire, and brimstone, Lot seems fled. He was afraid to stay in Zoar, and rightly so, because look what had happened to the other cities. And Zoar was originally on that list. So it's a lack of faith but it's the attitude he should have had earlier. And he goes to live in the hills, live in a cave. He's not like Abraham. He's not used to living as a sojourner, living in tents. He's accustomed to living in the city. And while we might all have descended from pioneers and ancestors who knew how to handle themselves in the woods, if we had to go out and fend for ourselves in the hills, we might have a hard time of it too. And they've got to live every day looking down on this apocalyptic ruin of the Jordan Valley. It said that when Abraham looked, remember that the smoke was going up like smoke from a furnace. So every day they get up and they see all of this. And they've got to look at everyone they had known, the places they had lived, and they're probably afraid to leave those hills. His wife is gone. She was made into a pillar of salt. You remember that? The sons-in-law are gone. They didn't come with them. And I get the feeling that a long time passed when these two women hatched this plan. This is not the kind of thing that that would be done quickly, you understand. This is the kind of thing that would be done out of desperation, but it is a very Sodom-like, very wicked plan. This is the kind of thing two women who had grown up in Sodom would do. It's not clear why they believed there was no man left to marry them and to give them children. It's possible, some have speculated, I don't think this is likely, but it is possible, that they thought everyone had died. And they they figured, is there anybody left? Because the whole valley had gone up in smoke, remember. It could be that they thought, who's going to want us? We came out of Sodom. We came out of the city that was destroyed, and and it's a byword now. Why is anybody going to want us? Maybe Lot was just too scared to leave the cave. Maybe Lot, with his fatherly authority, was like, we're not leaving. We're not going anywhere. And he was paralyzed by fear. And so they began to realize that time is running out. But the older daughter her name is not given, decides that in order to preserve their father's line and gain children for themselves, noble goals, it's noble to want children, it's noble to want to preserve your family name and honor your father, especially in that culture. But in order to achieve those noble goals, they're going to do a very ignoble thing, very similar to Abram and Sarah, remember, with Hagar and Ishmael. They're going to try to accomplish a good goal, by doing a very wicked thing. And they essentially date-rape their father twice in a row. You can see echoes of Noah's sin here, whereas wine, once again, getting somebody in trouble. And he's so drunk that he doesn't even realize his own daughters are coming in and violating him. And they bear children. And their offspring will figure largely in the biblical narrative. If you know your Bible, you know the name Moab and Ammon comes up quite a bit. Ruth was a Moabite woman. The Ammonites figure a lot in the Pentateuch especially. Let's break these names down here because they are important. first son's name is Moab or Moab. The B would have had kind of a V sound similar to Spanish. And that name means from father. It's a fitting name, isn't it? And Ben-Ami means son of my people or more specifically here probably my kinsmen. So even in those names you can see the, the reference to their conception, which is how names were given back then. They didn't just pick a nice name. They very often had significance like this. Now, the Moabites are going to settle along the Dead Sea. Both of these tribes will eventually. The Moabites will settle on the eastern shore to the south. The Ammonites will settle on the eastern shore of the Dead Sea to the north, and they're both going to become great nations. You can see how even Lot, even though he wasn't supposed to have come with Abraham, because of his connection to Abraham, he was also blessed. And we will read, not tonight, but in other passages in the Bible, that out of his mercy, God blessed these two nations. Because we see this a lot. Same thing with Ishmael. wasn't that kid's fault about how he, he came about. And God is merciful. But these nations are going to become thorns in the flesh of the nation of Israel. Very infrequently, Is Israel going to have a good relationship with Moab and Ammon until eventually God is going to declare judgment against them and He's going to wipe them out and we don't have any knowledge of these nations to this day? The first time we we see the major trouble is in the, the story when they're coming back from the land of Egypt to go into the promised land. And Moab and Ammon, especially Ammon, refused to give them any water, to give them any food as they were traveling through their land. There were some skirmishes that they were fought. And Deuteronomy 23, the Lord said, no Moabite and no Ammonite will be permitted to enter the assembly of the Lord. That is, anybody from any nation could come into the court of the Gentiles at the temple and worship. Not if you're from Moab, not if you're from Ammon, which is... Well, sidebar here, why the story of Ruth is so significant, because she was a Moabite, but she was placed into the line of Jesus Christ himself, the line of David. Isn't that something? We're not going to spend much more time on that, but it is fascinating to see the grace of God at work. But these were not friends to the nation of Israel, unless maybe they were, they were what you might call... Allies of opportunity. When Israel and Judah were the big powers in the area, well, of course, they wanted to play up their relationship and were friends, right? But then when Judah and when Israel, the northern and southern kingdoms were destroyed, Moab and Ammon allied themselves with their enemies. And in Zephaniah chapter 2, this is when God makes one of his major declarations against Moab and Ammon. And as I read this passage, listen to the, the comparison that God uses to describe them, okay? God says, I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom, and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them, and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. Moab shall become like Sodom, and the Ammonites like Gomorrah. If you're just reading Zephaniah, it makes sense to you. They're going to be destroyed. But if you know that they were descended from the only people that escaped from Sodom and Gomorrah, you see how significant that is. That's why it's important to know your whole Bible, because it all ties together. Now, after this, Lot and his family disappear into the pages of Scripture. We don't see exactly what happened to them. Seems very likely to me that they reconnected with Abraham at some point because the Israelites did know that they were related to the Moabites and the Ammonites and they knew that as well. So it seems likely that Lot came back to Abraham and I wish that the Lord had given us a glimpse of what that reunion was like, but it's not given, so I can't really say anything else about it. But that's the end of the story of Lot. He came with Abraham from the land of Ur to Haran, Then he came with him from Haran to the promised land. Should not have come. God told Abraham, remember, leave your family. He brought Lot with him. And you know, Lot was blessed. But at great personal loss did he achieve that blessing. And he ended up losing everything. And as I've already mentioned, Lot is a figure of warning for you and for me. Because we too are living in a world that does not honor God and makes a virtue out of sin. Just as Lot was. But Lot was a righteous man. Peter will tell us that. And Lot knew the Lord. Remember when the angels came to Sodom? Lot recognized them right away. Just like Abraham recognized them when they came to his tent. He knew the chosen one, Abraham. So how did he end up here in this cave with these two children of his? How did he get there? Well, the answer is slowly. So often, if we knew what terrible things would happen because of the decisions we make, we would never do them. Can you look back on your life and see times like that? If I knew where that friendship was going to lead, I would never talk to that person. If I knew where that job was going to take me, or if I knew where that party was going to lead, I would never have gone. You think to yourself, if I had a time machine, I could go back and stop myself from doing one thing on one day, you know exactly what it would be. But we don't know. We don't know that. And... You see here that Lot and his family are placed in a position where there's really no good choice for them. And he was put into that place by his own sin and his own compromise. A lot of times we look at our lives and we say there's really no good decision here. And there's no good decision because we made bad decisions all the way along the line. By the time we're ready to make a good decision, there's not really any good options left. And we still have to try to seek the Lord on that. But Lot's life is like many others. It did not start out with a tragic story, but it was a slow slide towards compromise that pinned him down. And we only get little glimpses of Lot throughout these stories. And I think the descriptions that we get of Lot and how he was related to the city of Sodom provide a very interesting picture of how we can slide away from the Lord and towards unrighteousness. So let's look at this. There's five steps that we see here. Number one, when Lot left Abraham, In chapter 13, verse 10, it says he looked toward Sodom. This is when they were arguing over the land and their herdsmen were fighting with one another. And Abraham says, you take which way you're going to go and I'll go my way. And it says, Lot looked toward Sodom and he saw that the Jordan Valley was beautiful. He admired it from afar. He was not a part of Sodom. He didn't want to be part of the sin of Sodom, but he wanted the blessing and the grandeur And the glory that came associated with being part of that city. This is step one. When we begin to look towards sin. When we look towards sin. Even if we're not participating. We just look at what the world's doing. And we begin to not just see it. But maybe linger. A little longer. Look a little longer. We're not participating in it. And we would never participate in it. But we grow dissatisfied with what God has provided. You take just a a second or third glance at that woman that is not your wife. And you would never, you would never break your vow to your wife, but you just look, you're just admiring. And we can start to feel as though God is cheating us. Similar to how Eve was deceived by the serpent and ate the fruit. But we ask ourselves, God told them, don't go and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the very next story, where do we see Eve? Standing under the tree of the knowledge of good and evil like, what are you doing there? What are you looking for? So look at your life and ask yourself, this is step one. Where are you admiring sin from afar? What attitudes or behaviors are you looking at and going, I wouldn't, but kind of would be nice if I could. you got to check your fantasies in your head. And this doesn't just mean sexual fantasies. What attitudes do you know you shouldn't have? And you look at them and you go, man, I would, I would love to act that way. It would be nice just to let that anger go every once in a while. Let me give you an example. Guys love movies with big tough guys in them, right? We love movies where there's, there's war and there's a just cause, but you know, we also love the, those mafia movies. And we look at those guys that are completely unfettered to any idea of right and wrong, and when they have a problem, they don't have to worry about what's, you know, what's the HOA going to say or anything like that. They just walk out with a gun and pow, they take care of it. Now, we would, we would never do that. But it's just nice to think about, oh, man, what if I could? If I could, you know where I would go? You know who I'd talk to? You know, ladies, I'll, I'll, I'll throw it your way now, ladies. You maybe look at somebody, a, a friend of yours, a celebrity or an actress or whatever, and you think, now I would never act that way or dress that way. But you know what? Sometimes I think the way that God's asked me to live is just kind of limiting. And I, I feel like I could, I could get ahead more if I was able to do that. And of course, we'd never do it, but we're looking towards Sodom. And we're admiring it. And we're thinking, man, there's something there. It's too bad I'm over here. Second thing we see in chapter 13, verse 12, just two verses later, he didn't just look. It says that Lot moved towards Sodom. He moved near Sodom. The old translations say he pitched his tent towards Sodom he's not living there but he's got real close he moved away from the company of godly men and he went close he pitched his tent towards Sodom this is the middle ground this is where it's really dangerous we're not engaging in the sin of the world but we're no longer actively pursuing God we just want to watch we don't want to look we want to watch you know the difference between looking and watching don't you What a foolish way to deceive ourselves. We insist, listen, I'm not going to be affected by these things. I'm going to soak myself in the world's culture and music and images and way of speaking and way of dressing, but it's not going to affect my spirit. I just want to be close. I just want to watch. I know that I shouldn't act that way online, but I want to be able to watch the back and forth. You know, I want to be in it. I want to be part of it. I want to think about how I would if I could. You move near. You start distancing yourself from the church and God's word and prayer because those things just start to feel so stifling and limiting. And over there is the glittering city of Sodom. And you're like, that's what I want, man. I know God says I shouldn't be greedy, so I shouldn't you know, be chasing after money at the expense of everything else. But you know what I'm going to do? I'm just, I'm just going to read all the books of all those guys. I'm going to watch all the movies and and talk to my friends that are off in that world, making all the money. I'm not going to do it, but I'm, I'm just right in there. Well, the next thing we see in chapter 14, verse 12, lot dwelt in Sodom. He's living there now. He's not just living on the outside with his tent pitched. He's living in the city of Sodom. He's sharing in its blessing. He's also sharing in its curse. Because when Sodom is attacked and the people are carried away, lots with him. And who's got to go in to rescue him? But Abraham, of course. He tried to be part of the city without participating in its sin. But now he is subject to the same ups and downs as the city of Sodom. Many Christians do this too. We participate in everything the world does. Like Daniel, we taste all the king's delicacies. We don't keep ourselves from anything, but we still think we can abstain from the sinful parts. I'm going to do everything the world does. I'm just not going to sin. That's foolish, isn't it? When you tie your fate to the world around you, you start to resent that conscience in the back of your mind calling you back. To walk with the Lord, you start to resent your Christian friends that every now and then are like, What are you, that's a bad idea, man. And you've got all your arguments lined up about why it's okay for me to go to this place, why it's okay for me to talk to these people, why it's okay for me to do X, Y, or Z. I'm not sinning. The Bible doesn't call that a sin. You're like, Yeah, I know, man, but you're changing and I can see it happening. Well, who are you to judge me anyway? And you no longer feel comfortable in the presence of Christians anymore. And you start to see, you know what, these are my people. Not, not the people up there at the terebinth trees of Mamre worshiping the Lord. I, that, yeah, that's important. and Yeah, I know. I, I should be back there. But this, there's just so many other things going on. And everything that goes up and down in the world is how you go too. And At the beginning of chapter 19, verse 1, we saw Lot sitting in the gate of Sodom. We talked about this. This very likely means that Lot had some authority. Or at least he was heavily involved and respected. Sitting in the gate of the city. That's where disputes were handled. That's where legal matters were taken care of. That's where the elders of the city gathered to talk things over and to discipline and to raise up the young men of the city. And there's Lot. We go from being part of the world system to even trying to direct and engage in it. You're no longer just in with the guys at work, now you're part of what they, what they do. You're not just watching them, you're with them. They're asking your advice, you're making decisions, you're the one driving the boat. We have ceased to identify whatever with the sojourners of this world. Lot was not a sojourner, Lot was a citizen. Not only that, he was a councilman, he was a leader. He wasn't just looking at Sodom from afar, now he's even involved in the, in the judgment in Sodom. And we can claim, well, I'm here to try to do good. If I'm involved in this, this shady deal, then I can try to make sure everything stays on track. Ooh, isn't that a, isn't that a terrible thing that we can trick ourselves into believing? But yeah, I know that this is, these are some bad people, but I'll be able to influence them. They won't influence me. That's a, that's a foolish thing to say. By our very participation, we are validating the evil practices around us. And in the end, verse 16 of this chapter, Lot was hesitant to leave Sodom. He was reluctant to leave Sodom. Judgment was coming. Two angels showed up and said, this city is going to get blasted with fire and brimstone from heaven. Get out. But we see in verse 16 that when the day broke, Lot lingered in the city. He was hesitant to go. Some Christians would be more upset at the loss of their money or their prestige or their pleasure if God judged the world than they are now at the wicked around them and the things they're doing. Say, Jesus, don't come back today. I'm just starting to make money. Jesus, don't come back today. Things are going well for me now. Thankfully, what did God do? God seized Lot. Remember we read that? They grabbed him (laughs) and they carried him out of the city. You almost get the impression that they flew him out of the city. Sometimes God does that to us. Has God ever done that to you? God takes your connection to something that you have no business being connected with and you're reluctant to cut the cord yourself so God comes in and he cuts it and it's painful and you're left drifting. You don't know what's going on, but God's like, I love you too much to let you go. We see this progression in Psalm chapter one, verses one and two. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night, walking in the counsel of the wicked. You're still walking the walk like you're supposed to, but you're starting to take advice from evil people. Now you're you're standing in the way of sinners. You stopped moving forward. You're hanging out with the sinners around you. You've moved into the city of Sodom. To the end, you're sitting in the seat of the scoffer. You're enthroned in the world of sin. And Psalm says there's no blessing there. Blessing comes to those who meditate on the law of the Lord day and night. Lot evaluated where he was going to live, how he was going to raise his family, the friends he was going to make, based on the external wealth and beauty of the Jordan Valley. And he paid the price for it. How might it have gone differently if Abraham said, let's split up and let's go different ways. And Lot had said something similar to, actually Ruth would say later on, which is, I'm not leaving you. Or Elisha, when he said to Elijah, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I'm not leaving I I need to be with you, Abraham. I shouldn't be here in the first place, but God speaks to you. Let's sort something out with our herdsmen. He paid the price for it. Now, let's be fair to Lot. Lot maintained his integrity. He did not engage in the sins of Sodom. But he didn't change a single mind by the way he was going about it, did he? In fact, at the end there, When the mob surrounded the house wanting to gang rape the angels and Lot comes out and says, gentlemen, please don't do this. They say, this guy showing up and trying to be judge. You're always so judgmental. All you've ever got to say is no, no, no. Well, you know what? You're going to get what's yours right now. And the angels had to snatch him away out of that situation. Oh, I'm doing good. No, you're not, Lot, because you're not living like a sojourner. You're living like a citizen. Second Peter two verses seven and eight says this: "God rescued righteous Lot, who was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, For as that righteous man lived among them day by day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard." You ever feel that? You ever feel tormented in your righteous soul when you see all the sin around you, when you're distressed by the conduct of the wicked? So was Lot. And that's good that he was distressed. You never want to get to the place where wickedness doesn't even affect you anymore. But he didn't have to stay there. What are you doing there, Lot? You're living in Sodom. Are you crazy? Now, he did not become as evil as the Sodomites, but you can see that his standard of righteousness was warped, man. They say, we're going to gang rape these angels. He says, no, no, no. Instead, you can sleep with my daughters. They're virgins. As if that was better Now, maybe he had an understanding of the difference between this and that, but it's like, Lot, are you out of your mind? You might be better than they are, but you're not anywhere close. What is good? His faith was weak. The angel said, get up and go, and he couldn't go. He was paralyzed. He didn't fall in Sodom. He didn't become like those men, but he was not walking strong, was he? Many times we want to be part of what's going on in the world. So I can take it. I can stand. It won't affect me we'll be able to handle living in that neighborhood. We'll be able to handle spending time with those people or watching that show or listening to that music or whatever. Well, you can handle it. And maybe you can stand. What you can't do is you can't walk strong. I'm standing, I'm standing, I, I can, I'm holding on. You're not supposed to hold on. You're supposed to move forward, to be constantly moving forward. And you may be able to avoid sinning yourself. Well, that's good, but all your spiritual energy goes towards fighting unnecessary temptation. Amen? There's plenty of temptation out there. And Jesus said it's inevitable. This is the world we live in. Until Christ returns, that's the way it goes. But you can put yourself in a position where there's extra temptation. It's kind of foolish. If you you say, well, I'm like Job. I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look on a woman and not to look with lust. Guys after the the job say, hey, we're going to go to a strip club. You want to come? You say, okay, I'll go. Lord, please preserve me from this temptation. That's ridiculous. The Lord's like, don't go. And then you're there and you say, Lord, help. I'm following Jesus. Where's the way of escape that you promised? God goes, the way of escape was way back there and you missed it. This is what Lot had done. He put himself in a situation where the temptation was everywhere, and he didn't have to be. Not like Joseph, who was constantly avoiding Potiphar's wife, because he knew that she was after him, and she wanted to fornicate with him and commit adultery with him. And Joseph's like, no way, you're not getting me. It says finally she set it up so that they were the only ones in the house. And it says she grabbed him, and she was going to force him by her authority as his master's wife To sleep with her. And it says Joseph ran and his garment tore off in her hands. Tells you how hard she was holding on, huh? This was intense temptation. And Joseph found himself there through no fault of his own. And he said, I'm out of here. And he ended up in prison for that. Because he says, I'm I'm not doing this. This was not Lot's attitude. Lot says, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to make a home here. I'm going to raise my kids here. We're going to be around these people. He was unable to go when the angel told him to go. Contrast that with Abraham. When God said, Abraham, I need you to do something for me. He goes, here I am, Lord, what do you got? Same happens to us. We look at the stories of Abraham. We say, I want to be like that. I want to be like Samuel where God says my name. And I'm like, Lord, I'm I'm listening. What do you want me to do? I'm ready to go at a moment's notice. But you can't. You're stuck. And you have made yourself stuck in your sin. Examine yourself, Christian. Are you free to follow the Spirit's leadership? Or are you so tied to the world and tied to its ways that you'd be sad to lose it? And I'll add this as well. This is moving to our next big section here. You might be able to handle yourself in certain situations. Let's use some obvious ones. You might be able to handle listening to certain music without sinning or watching certain movies or being around certain people. But let's move to this next thing here. Can your family and your friends? Are you able to take anyone with you when God says time to go, even your own family? Because here's what people will say. Well, Jesus spent time with tax collectors and sinners, and Jesus was spent time with prostitutes and zealots and all these other terrible people. Jesus was not out for a good time with these guys. When people came to Jesus, they were weeping at his feet and they were pouring their whole lives out and leaving everything to go after him. It's foolish when we try to use Jesus to to justify our poor decisions. Jesus participated in the world as a means of bringing salvation to the lost. Jesus was the one influencing. I can do that too. Don't deceive yourself. Don't deceive yourself. Well, Jesus, John three sixteen says, God so loved the world, right? So I should love the world too. Yeah, but remember, John also said in 1 John, he said, do not love the world or the things in the world. What's the difference? John's way of loving the world is loving everything about it, participating in it, enjoying it, saying, oh, this is so wonderful and I love every bit of it. Jesus loved the world like, like you love a, a homeless person strung out on drugs in the street. You hate everything about them because you love them so much, and you want to help them. We participate in the world. As Jesus prayed, we are in the world, but not of the world. This is why it says several times in the Bible, they they think you're crazy. They think you're weird. They think you're strange. Why why is that surprising to you? You don't belong to them. If If you were of the world, the world would love you, but you're not. They hate you like they hated me, Jesus said. Look at Lot's family. They looked more like Sodom than they did like Zion, didn't they? Now, Lot was a righteous man, and Lot maintained his integrity, but his family did not, and he led them into that. He had put them in a position where they could not stand, and it was his own selfishness that did it. We're going to look at three examples here. These are the the three relatives, you could say, of Lot who failed and how they failed. And each one of these is a sign of how you know that this is happening in your own life, in your family's life. First of all, we saw that his sons-in-law could not take spiritual things seriously. Remember in verse 14, the angel said, who are you going to take with you? And he went to his two sons-in-law to be his daughter's fiancés. We've got to get out of here. The Lord is going to destroy the city. And it said it seemed to them as though he was jesting. It was a joke. What are you, ta- what are you talking about? He's going to blow up the city? There are angels here. Angels? Okay. And they're laughing. No, no, I'm not not joking. They perished in that city because they couldn't get up and go because they could not take him seriously when he talked about spiritual things. You see that in your own life? Where your family, your friends cannot take spiritual things seriously? You cannot have a real conversation about life and death issues. You cannot talk about the Bible or about church or about theology without making some joke out of it. You can't talk about church with bringing up some sarcastic comment about some of the funny little things we do as a church. If you only ever refer to spiritual things in a flippant way, you sit down to pray, uh, yeah, yubba-dub-dub, thanks for the grub, amen. And if it's like, oh, yeah, it's kind of laughing, because, you know, we shouldn't do that, right? But, yeah, it's, you know, we're kind of praying. And if, if that's your attitude all the time, or if you only ever take spiritual things seriously on holidays or as a joke, Sometimes, and I'm not addressing anybody here, so I'm going to say this strongly. Some parents, it's like they want their kids to think they're cool. So they make fun of church, and they make fun of the Bible, and they're making fun of the pastor, and they're texting dumb things during the service, and then they don't understand why their kids went off to college and don't believe in God anymore. His son in laws thought he was joking. They don't know how to take spiritual things seriously. So many people, and I've seen this a thousand times. I did high school youth ministry. So I knew kids right at that crucial age. They think they're going to neglect spiritual things in their lives. Never bring them into their house. Never insist that their kids participate in spiritual disciplines. Drop them off at church and then go off and shop or go to the movies. I've seen all that. And then their kids walk away from the Lord. And then they come to me and they're broken hearted. And I understand why they're brokenhearted. But at the same time, it's like, I, you led them to this. You taught them this was something that didn't need to be taken seriously. You held up examples in their lives of people that abandoned the faith. You talked with, like, bragging to them about all the days before you got saved and all the stuff I did before I became a Christian. That's when that's when my glory days. We've got to take spiritual things seriously. How many times in the New Testament does it tell the young men especially to be sober-minded? You've got to be able to take things seriously. Not everything is a big joke. Somebody who takes everything as a big joke is usually somebody that is very insecure in their life and in the truth of what the Word says, which is why when we come here, we have fun, but we take things very seriously. Second thing we see, Lot's wife was in love with the city and its ways. Verse 26, they were fleeing from Sodom, and she turned around and it said she became a pillar of salt. And I believe what that is saying is that she was destroyed by the fire and brimstone that fell from heaven. No matter what that means, at the very least, we understand that God judged her for that. She was supposed to run and not look back, and instead she stands there watching. I had the the impression that she stood there gaping and weeping and crying and mourning over the city when they were supposed to be moving. She resented the judgment of Sodom. She didn't realize that this was right. She saw no justice in the justice of God. She mourned the loss of all the things that she was losing. Do you lead those that you love to delight in the things of God? And do you teach them to hold the world at a distance? It's okay to enjoy these things, but remember, this is over here and the things of God are here. Or do we spare ourselves no pleasure in our lives? There's not a thing the world offers us that we say no to. I'm not talking about sinful things. I'm just talking about neutral things. Everything the world has to offer, we want it. We stuff ourselves with the pop culture. We stuff ourselves with the way the world dresses and talks and acts and the, the way that they interact with one another. And the things of God are just sort of a an attacked-on thing. Yeah, okay, yeah, that's important too, but you know that's not really what's important to our life right now. This is like the, the seed that fell among thorns and the carers of the world choked it out. Yes, we know we're supposed to read our Bibles, but... These are my favorite books, and these always get first place. Yeah, I know we're supposed to be praying and fasting, but you know what? I, I just what, What's the point? I mean, God knows, right? Oh, and we, we make big jokes out of it again, right? Oh, I know I'm, I'm so bad for doing this and eating this way and talking this way. and Don't be surprised when the loyalty of your wife or your kids or your parents or your friends starts to slip. Say, well, what's going on? Why are they walking away from the Lord? Because we are to be different as Christians, strangers, the Bible calls us, weirdos. He used to call the folks back in the the 70s, the Jesus freaks. Like, what is with you freaks about Jesus? I go to church, but you guys are nuts. That's what Jesus has called us to be. And if we can't accept that in the day-to-day, it won't matter in the big picture. So many Christians think, when the persecution comes, I'm going to be ready But they don't deny themselves anything every day of their lives. And they don't separate themselves from the world one little bit. Don't be deceived. If you love the world and you teach your family, especially your kids, to love the world and you permit your wife and your family to love the world and everything about it and steep themselves in its culture and its philosophy and its thought, we can't be surprised when it's time to get up and go, and they can't. And thirdly, we see that his daughters acted in their flesh and not according to faith. In the story today, all of the story of Abraham has been God providing a child for somebody who had no hope of getting a child. And Abraham and Sarah made their mistakes along the way, but they still maintained faith that God was going to do this for them. This is thinking with your flesh. The spiritual does not get involved in our thinking one little bit. We don't think let's pray, we don't think let's fast. We don't think, let's go back to Abraham and ask him. We say, well, we've got to do what we've got to do. And you end up in a very carnal. Carnal means fleshly. You're thinking with your body and not with your spirit. They thought like sodomites, didn't they? This is a very sodom-like thing that they did. Have you taught your family and your friends the stories of how God has provided for you and loved you? Have you shown them how God is? received your faith and blessed you? I wonder if Lot had told them the story of how God had called Abraham out and that's why they were there in the first place and how God has preserved and blessed Abraham. Of course, he was so separated from Abraham, he probably didn't even know how things were going at this point. Or do we indulge, again, in every fleshly appetite and we mock people who trust God? And we're so self-reliant and we can do it ourselves. And those people that go to church and pray, yeah, I believe that God answers prayer, but you've got to do it yourself, man. It's like, hold on a minute. What are we teaching our family and our kids to do? Your old stories, how God has preserved you, will be life-saving for your family. Don't be embarrassed by them. And let me go ahead and say this, too. Again, I was a high school pastor for seven years. And there are many parents, and there is not one form of schooling that has a monopoly on this, okay, who think that by the school we send our kids to, that's going to handle everything. You punt You're raising your children at the most crucial stage and let some teachers handle that. Well, I send my kids to Christian school. I went to a Christian school. There was all kinds of mess going on. They just got really good at hiding it. Well, I'm going to homeschool my kids. I had a kid in my youth group who was homeschooled, the son of a pastor of another church who was dealing drugs out of his basement and was high almost all the time, and his parents had no idea we don't understand, because you know what they did? They said, we're going to homeschool. Set it and forget it, right? As long as we're homeschooled, it's okay. No, it's not okay. You can't abdicate your responsibility for your kids. Meanwhile, some of the kids that were in those terrible, awful public schools were the ones that were strong and walking with Jesus. So the point there is it doesn't really matter which track you pick. You can't give up and say, well, I've already picked my, my side, so I don't have to worry about it. Don't be embarrassed to teach your kids to walk away from the world. They've got to learn it sometime. Don't let them learn the world's ways. Look at how your kids are thinking and your your family, how they're thinking, your friends. How do they think when they're trying to face a problem? What is is the language that they use? And if it's not the language, so to speak, of Zion, if they're not thinking with faith, we've got to correct that and think, wait a minute, where are they learning this? Because they're not learning it from Jesus. 2 Corinthians 6 Verses 16 through 18 says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I'll make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and be a father to you, and you'll be like sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Separation. Why have we started mocking that in the church? We're talking about it as if it's a bad thing. Well, we want to be so separate from the world? Yes, we do. Well, the world's going to think that we're crazy. Yeah. Paul called that the offense of the cross. And he said in one place, God forbid I should remove the offense of the cross. Think again about Daniel. Daniel chapter 1, verse 8 says that Daniel purposed in his heart he would not defile himself. He was brought out of Jerusalem with Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, raised up to be eunuchs in the king's court. It is entirely possible, by the way, that Daniel and his friends were actually castrated for that role. And what they're going to do is they're going to raise them up to think like Babylonians, dress like Babylonians, eat like Babylonians, and they picked kids that were of the royal line so that they could turn around to the Jews and say, here, here are your princes. But they look just like us, they think just like us, they act just like us was a political strategy. But Daniel purposed in his heart, not me. I'm not eating the king's delicacies. And he did it. And he was the one that was blessed for it. It's possible to do it because you have God's power. The spirit dwells within you. You have God's word that shows you and tells you what is good. You've got God's church. Now y'all are here. I'm preaching to the choir. I get it, right? But the church is here to provide that, that influence and that community that we need. I'm afraid that we have been so embarrassed of being outside of the mainstream of culture that we've raised a generation that doesn't see the point of being separate at all. And instead, we spend our time making fun of the church, making fun of how weird we are, making fun of how we don't know all the latest songs and things. And it's like, yeah, but have you heard that song? Why should I know that? Why would I teach my kids that? The church who Doesn't dress like the world, or doesn't act like the world, doesn't speak like the world. It's like you realize that a lot of those things are are done in order to maintain a separation that we're supposed to have. We refuse to defile ourselves. I know a family, and this is a true story, one of my best friends growing up. And they had been saved out of the 80s heavy metal rock and roll lifestyle. And they had been saved, they were believers. But they, they were always talking about that stuff still. They still kind of dressed that way. They still listened to the music. They, they had a son who was very talented on guitar, so they were encouraging him to play all this stuff. And they thought it was kind of cool that they had this rebellious kid. And they started to see their son was getting into all the same stuff that they had been into and was drifting away from them, and they were losing their kid. And one day they found out he was starting to get into drugs and all this stuff. And this is a true story. They came to my father for counseling about what to do. And again, it was another one of those. The exit was way back there, people, not right now. But he said, listen, guys, I'm going to tell you. And as, as strange as it might sound, doesn't sound very spiritual. He said, the music you listen to and the way you dress and the way you talk has got to change because they're influencing your son. No, it's not. That's not it. He goes, yes, it is. And they're like, no, just, we really just want to talk about this issue. He's like, it's not just that issue, because this issue springs from all this stuff. And they go back and forth, and it got to the point where he said, all right, listen, guys. I know we disagree, but let me just ask you this question. If you knew for certain that the way you live and your whole vibe was contributing to your son's degenerate life, would you be willing to change? No. They said no. Because why? Because the Bible doesn't say that it's wrong for us to wear black all the time. The Bible doesn't say that it's wrong for us to listen to those kind of music. So we're not sinning, therefore we shouldn't have to change. They completely missed that even though what they were doing was not technically sinful, they were allowing their son to be influenced and led away. And they ended up losing that kid. Terrible, horrible story. I know another family, same kind of thing. Their kid was disrespectful, but he skateboarded and he played guitar and, but he just had a bad attitude. No one really liked him, he, but all the girls chased him. And the, the family had, they, they were not so cool growing up, you know what I mean? But they, and they loved the fact that they had a kid, oh man, this is what we always wished we were. And they never restrained their son. They never restrained his bad attitude. They never restrained his girlfriends. They never told him, no, you can't listen to that. They never told him, don't talk that way, don't dress that way. That boy ended up committing suicide later. Now, is that their fault? I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is they had plenty of opportunities to restrain and change the way they were living for their own children's sake. But there are sometimes we, not they, we get so proud and tied up in who we are and what we do and what we watch and what we listen to. Stupid stuff that it wrecks the lives of those around us. But because we don't have a Bible verse that says thou shalt not do X, Y, and Z, we feel justified in doing it. We cannot be flippant with spiritual things and then expect everybody to be able to be serious when it's a serious situation. You can't look with longing upon the world and live in the world and delight yourself in all the things the world does and then expect that you're ready to go when God says to go. You've got to take the time to be serious in your walk with Christ. Discipline yourself spiritually. Where do we lose this? The Christians pray. That's just what we do. We read our Bibles. We fast sometimes. We go to church. We raise kids. We don't swear. We don't dress immodestly. We don't watch and listen to those things that are going to take our thoughts away from the Lord. We're always desiring to grow in holiness. We view ministry and missions as noble things to pursue. Where do we lose that? The world doesn't do those things, but we were saved out of that. We don't want to look like Sodom, even if we must live in Sodom for a time. In Paul's day, we don't want to look like Rome, even though we live in Rome. In our day, we don't want to look like America. We want to look like heaven. Because what happened to Lot is Lot was so intent on being part of the world, he lost his family and he ended up having these monuments to his own failure. Even though he himself had not committed the sin, he was left in a place where it was too late. Whether you wanted to or not, you've now got these horrible relationships with these these children that are your sons, but they're your sons by your daughters. Not a nice story. And that concludes the Sodom cycle, as it's called. And I want you to finish by by looking at the differences here. We started out this, this cycle, as we called it, with the three angels, or the two angels in the Lord, coming to visit Abraham and Sarah in their tent. It was the heat of the day. There was laughter when Sarah was laughing and they were saying, you're going to have a child and breaking bread with the Lord. And then there was that moment of intercession. And then they went down to Sodom and it got dark and the fire and the brimstone fell from heaven, ending with this horrible perversion of the blessing of a child. It's been a journey. And it ought to be a warning to us. Abraham might have been lame, but Abraham... Walked with God. Hebrews 12.1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, what does that mean? Since we've got so many good examples to look to, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Weight and sin. We know what sin is. Don't do it. But what, are, what is a weight? It's something that is not technically a sin, but it keeps you from following Jesus. You go backpacking with somebody. Somebody starts lagging behind. One of the questions you ask is, how much stuff have you got in that backpack? Well, I thought I would need these things. Now it turns out you don't. They're just slowing you down. You might not be able to go as far or climb as high as you'd like because you've got so many weights. For Lot, was it a sin to live in Sodom? No, but it was a weight. And he lost his family for that. You too are a sojourner, an exile. But if you allowed yourself to become a citizen, let me tell you something. I love my country. I love being an American. I I love the history. I, I study it. I read about it. You know, my heart gets real big when I see the flag and all that stuff. But there's a difference between loving your country and forgetting heaven. The Lord told the children of Israel when they were in exile through Jeremiah, he said, seek the welfare of the city to which you've been exiled. We want to do that. But at the same time, this is not our home. Where are you in your life? Are you looking with longing on Sodom? You haven't done anything, but every now and then you just look and you go, man, it looks real nice. Have you moved close? You're you're, you're surrounding yourself with these things. even though You're not there, not doing anything, but you're surrounding yourself with it and thinking about it all the time. Maybe you've moved in and you're living in it. Maybe you're sitting in the gate. You're part of it, man, and you're trying your best to keep the sin at bay. But the Lord says to flee those things. Or you might get to the place where you're like Lot and you can't flee. If you cannot do it for yourselves, then do it for your families, your friends, your neighborhoods. We talked about these issues of gender and sex last week. There's a big issue that the way the Lord has taught us is so different from the wickedness that the world is into right now. Don't leave those things for the world to instruct us. Like Joshua said, I don't know what the rest of y'all are going to do, but as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And Joshua had to have that determination, because the rest of those people were not going to serve the Lord. Each one of us has to make a determination of what we're going to do. And you know what? Each one of us is probably going to come up with it looking a little bit differently. Paul makes this case in the New Testament. He says, somebody's strong over here, somebody's weak over here, but you've got to know yourself enough to know where you're weak not to judge one another, but to make these decisions out of the fear of God, not the fear of missing out. I fear God. I fear his judgment. And I know what he did for me on the cross. There's a beautiful song that I love, and it's, it's not about this. It's about forgiveness, but it, it applies. Where the, the line goes, after all the Lord has done for me, how could I give any less? And you think of how God sent his only son. He became a man to die on the cross and bleed out and suffocate for you on that cross. And then he rose from the dead and said, I've given you a new life, and we're going to go back and we're going to wrap ourselves in the trapping of the world. We're not going to come out of the grave. We're just going to play around in it and still wear the grave clothes because we like the way they look. We're always going to be strangers in this world. That's the thing. The Sodomites knew Lot was different. Even though he'd been living there and sitting in the gates, the minute he pushes back, they're like, I knew this guy. I knew this guy was not one of us the world knows it why do we try to do like a worse version of the world and its thing instead of just leaning into what jesus has given us we want to hold up righteousness high we want to work until the lord comes because as jesus said the night is coming when no one can work so that when he comes to snatch us away and he says you got anybody to bring with you we say oh yeah